As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you're stressing, but you're gonna be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up. You're listening to the Tom Fickman Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. All right, good morning, salutations, New Haven. we got a great show today. We're taking you from St. Louis to L.A. Uh, to Maryland and, um, and I think Idaho and New York, everywhere in between, so... We're across, we're, we're all over the place today. It's good, got a good show to you today. And we've been talking for about a year now on different shows about this teacher shortage. And I, I've come to this conclusion that it's not a teacher shortage, it's a teacher flight. And that the policies and the power makers that be are chasing teachers away from our schools. And so today I have two great teachers who have recently left and that's a sad thing for me. And I have uh, a top team of three researchers who I believe at this point, there's somewhere near four or 5,000 uh, participants in their, in their research. And that's an amazing amount. Uh, that's an incredible amount of participants. And it's gonna give us some solid data and they're gonna talk about that. They're a great team. And they're all great educators themselves. And then we're gonna um, uh, talk to Cynthia McDermott who there was a time when teacher development was on fire. And and we'll end with uh, we'll talk to Cynthia McDermott as well. All right, everyone. Hey, thank you, Harry. Thank you, New Haven FM one hundred three point five. Thank you, uh, Tom Fricklin. And how about we start with uh, Quentin? Quentin, can you I, tell us a little bit about yourself and your passion? Absolutely. So first, thanks for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this issue because um, I'll start by saying that currently right now I'm about seven to eight weeks away from getting my doctorate um, in education. It'd be my fifth advanced degree in education. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and my capstone specifically looks at public pedagogy. And this idea that part of the reason why we don't understand what's going on with teachers is that the images that we get in the media of what a teacher should be are actually very harmful, especially movies like Lean On Me that are considered to be like a pillar of education excellence. That movie is nothing but tyranny and a lot of things that I could not do today. And if you understand Joe Clark's story further, it should be problematic. But instead, that is promoted as this is how a good teacher teaches. And so my goal and my passion is really reflecting the pedagogy, the love of teaching. And so I'm very excited to be here because even though I'm gonna tell you all about what should have been horrific, I also have hope and I really truly believe in the power of what we do. Perfect, perfect. All right, I love it, I love it. And speaking of uh, Mr. Clark, I'm a Jersey boy. And if anybody chased a lot of teachers away from the Patterson schools, it was him. <laughs> so, right. uh, Erica, are you in the house? Hi everyone, thank you so much for having me. Good morning. 
Good morning. Good morning. Um, my name is Erica Chavarria. I was a teacher at the same high school that I graduated from uh, in 2000 um, for the past 12 years. Um, I recently transitioned to become the executive director of an organization called Columbia Community Care that I founded um, sort of accidentally, but 100% because of my students. Um, and the only reason that I've stayed in the profession or I stayed in the education profession so long was because of my students and my love for them and their families and my community. Um, and now I will hopefully be in a place where I can still be around young people and still be around my community and my students and their families, but in a liberatory way, as opposed to a environment that feels restrictive and oppressive and soul crushing um, for both educators and for our students for so many reasons. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a very rough environment um, on your mental, emotional, uh, physical strength, both for educators again and for our young people who are the recipients of what is happening um, on a larger scale. So um, I will definitely go more in depth, but um, thank you, Quinton, for that introduction. That was definitely spot on. Um, and I think a lot of what we're seeing in terms of how racism um, penetrates through the entire system and institution of education um, is a lot of the reason why people are leaving. Um, at least it was in my case. Perfect, perfect. And you just like last night, I think you got an award or something for being one of those great teachers down there. Uh, but uh, right now I want to go to Denisha and, and the other two researchers here. Uh, Brianne and Clint, because their study, and they're, they're still in the thick of it, is I think over 4,000 respondents looking at teacher burnout, uh, anxiety, depression, the whole deal. So, Denisha, could you give us a little bit about who you are? Sure. Thanks, Jesse, for having me. Uh, my name is Denisha Jones, and I am I was, up until this year, a full-time uh, tenure-track professor. I have actually stepped back from that as well for lots of reasons. But um, So I work primarily, I'm a director of a nonprofit called Defending the Early Years, so I can do advocacy around early childhood issues. But I continue to teach. Um, I continue to teach classes and teacher ed at Sarah Lawrence College and Howard University. Um, but a couple years ago, two years now, I think, um, Brian reached out to me and, and said, you know, we should, do some, we should do some research on what's happening with teachers in COVID. And um, then we tapped into Clint because he's our quantitative guy and we're the qualitative gals. And so we did a first study one year, which we call 1.0, where we surveyed, uh, I think it was around a thousand teachers about what was happening. And this was like in that first full year back. So after spring 20, so this was 2021. And we interviewed about 20, 23 teachers as well too. Then we did a second round where we really wanted to focus on mental health, burnout and stress. And so that survey got about almost 4,000 responses. Um, and then included in that, we, we did over, we got a couple hundred qualitative responses about exactly what the stress and burnout looked like. And then we did a series of focus groups and interviews as well too. And we're still in the thick of analyzing all of that data. We sent one article on publication from the first set, but now we're trying to look at all of the second set. And what we're seeing is that it's COVID, but it's a lot of other things, right? We asked people in the focus groups and the interviews about the attacks on teaching truth and all of that and how much that's impacting them. Um, we've seen differences among the few teachers that, of color that we've had in, in their responses and how they were being treated. So 
Um, it, it is COVID, but it's a lot more. COVID is just the icing on the cake of what's been happening to the teachers, right? And so it, it's really showing us that this is, this is, yeah, this is not good. <laughs> yeah, it was the final blister before everything exploded. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, what about, let's see, uh, we, we've got some other team members on that team. So uh, maybe Brianne, you can give us, uh, tell, tell us who you are and your passion. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm an assistant professor of Social Foundations of Education at Southern Utah University, um, where I work mainly with graduate students at this point. So in-service teachers who are experiencing everything that we're going to be talking about today. Um, I've been a teacher for almost 20 years in some capacity. Um, so really in tune with education, um, love my students, and but it's really disheartening to hear what's happening um, to teachers and, and really to be in the classroom with pre-service teachers and really try to get them excited about this current state of education that we find ourselves in. Um, I, I echo what Quentin says, though. I, I do have hope that um, we can kind of persevere through this and, and make some change that's definitely needed um, in a lot of these areas. Um, I'm also the co-editor of a recent publication, a book that came out, um, Children and Trauma, Critical Perspectives for Meeting the Needs of Diverse Educational Communities. Um, and I think that's another layer of this, is this collective trauma that we've all experienced in the wake of COVID and all of these attacks on the teaching profession. It's just layers of trauma that have been put upon teachers. Um, so thank you for having me. Yeah, like Mary J. Bly said, no more drama, no more drama. Let's get rid of that stuff. But uh, Clint is over there. He's a music man. He'll share a little later on. But uh, let's go. Clint, you're the quantitative man. So I love mixed methods. And when we can put quantitative numbers together with qualitative data, oh, my gosh, that tells the whole story, Clint. So tell us who you are and what your passion is. Well, my name is Dr. Clint Broadbent. Um, I am. I also am with uh, with Bree uh, here at SUU, uh, Southern Utah University. I've uh, been here for four years. Uh, I'm a methodologist by trade, and I I feel the exact same thing. I kind of fell into lockstep with Bree and Denisha because uh, I love I love numbers. I'm a numbers guy, but I like numbers that can tell a story. And uh, the and Bree and Denisha told me about their passion and. It kind of was infectious, and uh, not the COVID variety, just just regularly infectious. And so uh, it was. But I just really, I have a passion for research, and uh, particularly about um, educating people about usually underserved populations. Uh, my previous research was on Latino immigrant youth, and I really love uh, shining a light on underserved populations and hopefully um, using data to tell a story. And hopefully, usually when the story meet, meets the research and the numbers, we get we hopefully get the catalyst for change. So that's why I'm here. That's why I love what I do. Well, that's good, good. We're going to get into And this show is all about hope, people. Yes. We're going to talk about the realities, but we're going to come back. It's about hope. So um, our, our final guest on the show is Cynthia McDermott. She's, I think, in L.A. at the moment or somewhere down there on the West Coast. She's up really early for this piece. But, but she represents teacher development at, at, at one of its most beautiful and powerful points. And they're still imagining, still recreating, still in, in the but But Cynthia was the editor, the co-editor of a series, Firefox Approach. So, Cynthia, could you tell us about who you are and what your passion is? 
Sure. Good morning, everybody. How is everybody? Good yes, morning. it's early in Los Angeles, and I don't see any fires outside my window. So it's a good day in LA. <laughs> um, I started teaching in 1971, and I've been teaching ever since. And I just finished 53 years of teaching, uh, having uh, finished now as a maritime faculty at Antioch University. Um, but I started off as a high school English teacher in Philadelphia. I taught kindergarten in Compton. I've had a wide variety of experiences, but I went into higher education as a university person because I wanted to spread my subversive message further than just in the classroom and to help classroom teachers have more strength to do the kind of subversive work that we need to be done to help our kids fight against the oppression that they experience every day. Um, sadly, Antioch University closed the two teacher education programs in California. We might get into that a little later. Uh, what we're seeing across the country, you know, and from my perspective after all these years, uh, as Jesse has, you know, clearly pointed out, uh, we have to remain hopeful, but we have a big battle in front of us. Uh, this, is, this is the battle for the soul of our children not just for our own sanity. And so I'm still fighting the good fight. Uh, maybe talk about it a little bit more later, but working with teachers over the years and helping them become confident in the work that they do and know that they have a support network to work with uh, is really important because, you know, you walk in the classroom and you close the door, it can be a pretty lonely job if you don't have the support. And it was, we certainly are seeing a lot of folks leaving the profession, that's the group that I'm most concerned about, but I think Bree, you were right, trying to convince people to come into the profession right now is a little challenging as well. But the more we talk about it and the more we share our love for the work we've done, I think the better we'll be going into the future. And I appreciate the work, Denise and Clint and Bree, that you're doing to bring the numbers to everybody so that our government can see what's going on because you know, the folks we elect to protect us are not doing a very good job. So, but Bernie is in the house today, so. Okay, <laughs> all right, all right. So, so I'm gonna bring us back to, uh, uh, I'm gonna go back to our, our two teachers who's recently left, gonna take us to our researchers and bring it back to, to Cynthia. And, and what I wanna do now is, I want you to lay out for at least our two teachers, what made you leave? And Denisha, you too, I'm worried. I'm like, you're one of my favorite, favorite faculty members. Uh, you were the inspiring and Ricardo Rose, another friend of mine, you know, stepping backside, not out of the fight, but there. But uh, uh, let's let's go with uh, Quentin. Could you tell us what, what made you leave? Was it just that you wanted to get your doctorate or you felt pressured out? So I wish it was that, to be honest with you, but um, the last three years of my experience have been atrocious. And that's a word that I'm using, not in hyperbole. When la uh, two years ago, the highlight of the career of the year was when I met someone, she referred to me as a Negro and explained to me how she had the right to call me that. And that when I told her that perhaps she could use different language, that that was me trying to revisit and change history. And that if MLK called himself that, she should be able to call me that. That was the easiest incident at that school. At one point, I was accused of teaching the Black side of history. 
<laughs> and I was also essentially told that if I wanted to fit in, I should stop wearing dashikis and maybe change my last name. And that was by a black administrator. I left that district thinking, oh my God, nothing could get worse. And then last year happened. Last year, I saw kids being slammed against walls. I had a white teacher colleague on my team. Um, she was berating and cursing at our black students and telling them how they were not achieving and that no one cared about them so loudly that I was at the other end of the building. And this is a very big building. And I was coming up the stairs and I could hear her yelling at my students. You know, I was off on break. So I ran down there to address that. And I, I didn't see any discipline of that teacher. But once I started complaining about things like a, a person saying that I was only a good teacher because I was a man and I had a penis, I complained about the, the administration not doing anything about some concerns that some female students had about a male staff member. I personally didn't know what was up, but I was in the middle and I kept asking them to at least talk to the girls to get their side and they wouldn't. And so when I finally also expressed my frustrations with Title IX and being treated differently as a male in the building, I on February 16th, I was called into a meeting with HR after ending my school day, had no clue what it was. And when I walked in, I was given a letter. I was told suspension, but in the letter it said unpaid leave or paid leave. I didn't know in Missouri, a teacher can be put on paid leave unlimited. As long as no one complains, I was put on leave to investigate informal allegations against me that I berated other teachers, that I had said, F this school, F all this other stuff. And the funny thing about this, Jesse, I had been locking myself in my classroom doing yoga just to maintain my peace. So when I got accused of that, I was like, what? Because I didn't even talk to anyone. So luckily I had texts to support my version. And ironically on the phone, on the, the conversation that I was told, I said, F this and all of that, I did curse, but it was at the end of a private conversation with a friend when I said to her at crying, just leave me the F alone. I just want to do my job for my kids. That's all I'm asking. And she said, and then I apologized, even though it was a private conversation. I said, I'm sorry for cursing, but at this point, I don't know what else to do. And she said, it's okay. They put me on unpaid leave for the rest of the school year. And only one week before the school year ended, did they finally even let me know what I was being accused of. And when I told them that I had proof and they got it, all I got in my file was two letters that said, you know, you want to try to be nice if you can. And then one of the letters said, and avoid cursing in the future. But I actually did not ever get reprimanded. I was not suspended, nothing like that. My students lost a great teacher. I've won in international awards and all of that. They have four subs that replaced me. So in addition to the $30,000 I was paid in salary and benefits, they were paying other people. So I wouldn't be in the building. And I firmly believe it was because I had raised enough noise about the Title IX things and the, uh, the violence that I saw being perpetuated on kids by other educators. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. So we're chasing our diverse teachers out of the room for defending their students. That's interesting. I, I can understand that. Erica, uh, 
I was quite surprised when you left. You know, I'm friends with your mother. We've been friends for, I don't know, decades and decades. Uh, can you tell me wh when did you decide to leave? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I, I'm just as surprised as you um, because I never imagined myself doing anything other than teaching. Um, and again, like I said before, the students are the only reason I stayed as long as I did. Um, I think that, you know, Quinton, first of all, like my heart is with you. Um, what you went through is just yeah. outrageous. Um, and just know there are people that are fighting to counter this, this, this disgusting behavior by the administration and the system. Um, but I think, you know, I, 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 I could talk, I definitely, you know, faced, I, I teach in an anti-racist way. Um, I, my, I, I taught Spanish, but I did it from an Afro-Indigenous lens. Um, I had been reported multiple times by white teachers saying that my lessons were uh, racist against white people. Um, there was a, a teacher in my building who testified at the Board of Ed saying that I was indoctrinating students and then actually showed a clip of my lesson plan, which I don't know how he even got. Um, and then I had students that actually went and countered his testimony by saying that they wanted the education and that it wasn't indoctrination. Um, but you know, those, and again, right-wing right, right -wing attacks um, on on calling me a Marxist because I used a quote from Paulo Freire. Um, just, you know, I've been through uh, th multiple things. Um, luckily, um, I think that I was fortunate to be in a school that the administrators um, supported me to a degree. And they also knew that the students, I had a good relationship with the students and that they would have less issues in the building if I was there. Um, and because they were able to kind of use me as a way to, to navigate around problems. Um, but what I, I, that really wasn't ultimately the reason that I left. I think the, the reason that I left um, was, to be quite honest, um, when I started the organization that I started, um, it really got me thinking about what I wanna do with my life and how I wanna best serve the young people of my community. And I, I realized that I've been fighting so long in this system, thinking that I could change it from the inside out. And I, I don't know if it's possible. Um, I know that like I was a barrier to harm in my building many times um, and like a safe space and a safe haven for the students that I was able to be, you know, fortunate enough to and honored to teach. Um, but there's just so much and I, waking up every day with that, like pit in your stomach and the anxiety and like the constant, I mean, like it is a constant state of anxiety, like panic constantly. And again, it's not the kids, it's everything else that comes along with it. it it's the system that does this. The system doesn't treat young people the way that they deserve to be treated. They treat young people in this app with no respect or value for their mind and their brilliance and their intelligence and their independence and their ability and their strengths. They don't treat students the way they deserve to be treated. And they treat teachers the same way and educators the same way that they treat students, which is, which is not okay. Um, and I, and I realized that the work that I was doing that started off as a food service. So I, the organization I started was, was really about providing food for my students and their families when the pandemic hit understanding that they were going to be facing exacerbated hardships, not that COVID caused the hardships, but exacerbated hardships. And then I realized that I really could expand what I had built upon to reach 
to, to programming around education meant for liberation, education meant for freedom. And I could really have the freedom myself to provide programs and to provide an atmosphere that was in my own hands, that I could control a safe space for my students outside of the school system. And so ultimately this, the decision that I made was a really hard one. It was excruciating. It was not an easy decision. And my students, when I told them on the last day of school, it wasn't final, but I, I wanted to give them a warning um, that, that I may not be back this coming year. Right. And they, um, they actually protested and like walked out with their fists up and were really angry at me. And I was really proud of them. Cause I was like, Oh, I taught you that. That's so great. And then I was like, but don't do that to me. Um, and then, <laughs> um, and some of them were, I mean, they were really angry at me and, but I, I, and it was really heartbreaking. It was, it was painful to see that. Um, and I do miss them in that environment, but I know that what I'm working for, um, will be able to create a space that is so loving and affirming of who their identity, that is their space where they can walk in and just be exactly who they are without worrying about um, curriculum that doesn't represent them or curriculum that is harmful to them or police in schools or all the other things that school, school to prison pipeline and everything that goes along with that. And so that's ultimately why I chose to leave um, for the aspect of freedom, freedom for my community, freedom for myself, freedom for my young people. Um, and I hope that I'm gonna be able to carry through with the mission um, that I have set forth. Um, also, we have these pillars, educa liberation education, health and healing, um, and career, uh, it's a career pathways, but really purpose pathways, which is about allowing young people to have um, opportunities to find careers that are based on their passions, where they can still build generational wealth. So because in school, we all know that it's always deficit based. What can't you do? What can't, we're, we're always crushing them, crushing them, crushing them. And we don't show them enough of the opportunities of how they can hone in on their strengths and their passions and do something that they love every day and wake up saying, I get to do this and I'm also building generational wealth for my family. And so that's ultimately why I made the decision to leave the education profession. We might try to get you back. All right, Quentin, you wanted to say something quick to, to yeah. do that before I go to the research team? Yeah, I just wanted go to ahead. add that um, ultimately I echo a lot of what Erica was saying about like people trying to, you know, pit you against other educators and seeing other, other, other educators do that. But a bigger thing, which was, when I wanted to go ahead and file a Title IX complaint, I went through the process, I posted everything, I let other educators see it, and educators throughout the world sent messages on my behalf to my district. I found out that the NEA was actually working against me, um, actually helping my district. And then literally at one point they said to me, like, they're afraid of precedence. They're afraid that if they fight something too far, that it might hurt other teachers. So like in Missouri, we have a situation where a teacher was fired for putting up a picture that her kid, uh, a classroom kid put up of her family with two uh, women. And the principal said that went against his faith and his morals and they fired her. And the union basically explained to me, they would not fight for that teacher because they were afraid that if they lost in Missouri, which is a Republican state with uh, elected Supreme Court officials, that it would set a bad precedent for teachers everywhere. So sometimes as an educator, even when, like in my case, Title IX, it is clear they violated it. There are so many attorneys that are overloaded with Title IX cases that I couldn't even find one. And the Missouri Council, uh, Commission of Health Human Rights said, they're backlogged six, seven months. So I wanted to add that because I think it's important to know that 
I left to give myself a break and to do something I needed to do, but I miss my kids and I see them and I love them and I truly love the humans they are. But this is a bad issue that is bigger than just myself, Erica, and other like teachers. Like this is big. Excellent, excellent. Denisha and and, uh, Brianne and Clint, uh, I do wanna know what the status is, but I'm, I'm hoping there was some hope in your research as well. Could you start off, share, share Denisha and maybe uh, Brianne and Quentin could give us a little bit of that hope? Yeah, well, I mean, actually I'm gonna want, yeah, there's, there's hope when we get to recommendations. So I want Clint to go first and just talk to you a little bit about the data because that is really important because that's really is important. And Bree's gonna talk a little bit also about um, what's happening, like what have we thought about in these responses we've been receiving that's happening in teachers. And then I'll talk briefly like the hope, what can we do? Because there is stuff that we can do and there are things being done. Um, it's just not on a wide scale enough. Yeah. Uh, so I'm really excited. Again, our big our big landmark study or the big one that we are we're really building off of right now is our is our 4,000 uh, you know almost 4,000 uh, participant study on teacher burnout and mental health. But one of the important things is is to understand what's going on with teacher burnout and health. We did a we did a previous study with about a, a thousand participants that kind of talked about the attitude surrounding. Um, the pandemic, right in pretty much right in the the middle of a pandemic, and so it was. It's really interesting just to see anecdotally some of the red flags that we we saw in our first wave study that uh, are starting to kind of maybe we can start to see a tentative connection uh, between our first study and our second study, and a couple of things that kind of speaks to what uh, what Quentin and Erica were kind of talking about was. Uh, in the, our first study, we, we saw an interesting disconnect between the teachers were talking about how, how much they felt like their, their district and their, and their union uh, were, have their backs. And, um, and we saw that, for the most part, teachers said, um, you know, that my union has my, you know, will fight for me or, will, or is my best uh, has my best interest at heart. They care about me. Uh, but when we ask them, uh, will they fight for you to make sure that you don't have to go back to school until you feel safe, the scores were much lower. So there was a really interesting disconnect where I think the teachers were looking and saying, um, our, my district is saying, hey, we got your back. But they were also probably sending a competing message saying, you're going to go back to school. We're starting this thing now. And if you need to get on the bus, you know, you need to, you need to get going. And so there is, it seemed like there was going to be, there's a, there was a disconnect there. And so one of the interesting things that we started to notice, especially with our burnout in our level two was we did, or actually it was still actually in the level one was asking for the most part, um, when we looked at uh, big things like being berated and being uh, put down and things like that. We didn't see the numbers didn't support that that was a wide scale thing. Now in our qualitative information, we got a lot of we got stories like like what Quentin shared and things like that. But as a whole, we didn't see that. What we saw was the smaller things that like I was asked to perform below my competence level and uh, just 
small, you know, just little tiny things that kind of were kind of building up. And so we kind of started to kind of see this idea of a slow burn, mm -hmm. uh, that it was, it was not the big things. It was not, it was not being screamed at or things like that. It was just the feeling of these people don't have my back and these people aren't supporting who I am. And we see that we saw that and we're starting to see that in our level two data that uh, when we looked at the mental health for people, people were already at an elevated stress level. People are considered to be moderately depressed. Our teachers in the 4,000 being study that they are, they are quantifiably in our, in our um, empirically validated uh, measure that people would be consi are considered depressed and they have an elevated level of burnout that uh, in some cases just is, is extremely high. And we're seeing this and I feel like there's this really interesting connection that I think uh, Bree and, uh, and Denisha are going to talk about, but the numbers are not, are not looking good, are not looking good, but we see that what the teacher's belief was in, in time in our first study looks, there's to be some tentative things or some interesting connections for this burnout, depression, and anxiety that we're seeing um, in our students. I didn't right. No, cool. But looking on, the, on this topic, um, a friend of mine, newly elected Congressman Jabal Bowman, was an exceptional school principal teacher in the Bronx, and he was a, a TEDx CCSU talker for me. And Jamal always talks about the pedagogy of love. Mm -hmm. And it made him one of the most popular and successful principals in, in the Bronx. And I'm sure it helped him become the, the congressman who defeated a 28 year incumbent. But Jamal uh, is fighting that battle, just like probably Erica and Quentin, uh, people may be leaving the classroom. But uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about is I want them back. I lost one of the best principals the Bronx has ever had. I'm losing one of the best Spanish teachers that Columbia has ever had. I'm losing one of St. Louis's most amazing teachers, Quentin, over there, that stuff. And, and I'd like to just go to Cynthia for a moment because a conversation uh, Cynthia McDermott and I were having about, maybe it could have been a week or two ago, I, I, I forget, but Cynthia was talking about some great group of teachers she worked with in LA and they worked on improving their pedagogy. And she was talking about, about they want to leave now. Cynthia, could you share a little bit about that, that group? And particularly, I think you had one LA teacher who was feeling like he was being pushed out by a mega principal. Yeah, exactly. So over the years, dear friends, I have been privileged to work with an approach called Foxfire that started more than 60 years ago in Northern Georgia. And Foxfire's uh, founder, Elliot Wigington actually did a lot of work with Miles Horton at the Highlander Center. So if you start to see these connections over the years of anti-oppressive behavior that the United States has been grounded in because of unionist issues, et cetera, you can see that we, you know, we're standing on a whole lot of shoulders, you know, Woody Guthrie and, you know, everybody. And so the Foxfire approach was very smart when it started. The approach is not a pedagogical model. It's on here's the materials, here's the book you have to use. It used um, some very clear John Dewey-based perspectives and that Foxfire approach uh, was smart to set up teacher networks. 
and I was privileged to be in charge of the college level college network group. And so college faculty across the country were part of that. We also had local ones. So we started a college or a local teacher network in LA. And many of those folks I'm still connected with, even though the funding for Foxfire ended. One of the one of the challenges, if you hear this message through all of this, is that as the government has become much more autocratic and fascist in its perspective, we're losing the support of a progressive model. You know, when you see the people who are running for office, progressivism is disappearing, and we have this very conservative fascist model that's existing out there, which is influencing finance and money and support. So what happened with those network support groups is exactly what you're talking about. Quentin, if you had had a group of people who were like you, who thought like you, who could listen to your story, who could give you support, who might even have been able to come into the classroom with you and be there with you, your life would have been different. It might not have changed the end result, but your daily experience would have changed. And that's what the networks did. They provided that kind of support. And I got a phone call recently. It's interesting, Eric, I've been thinking about starting a nonprofit. Uh, you're giving me uh, more juice to do that. I got a phone call from a guy, he and I have done a couple of books together. He's a fabulous, creative, progressive instructor. And he called and he said, um, let me run a title by you. I'm thinking about writing a book called The Atheist in the Classroom. Who do you think might publish that? And then he proceeded to tell me that he has a MAGA principle. And the MAGA principle is just happening to pop into his classroom all the time. Now, this is LA Unified. It's a very um, um, higher uh, end kind of school because of where it's located. And even there, that's a problem. And Jesse, he's not going to leave because I won't let him leave. You know, I'll, I'll be in that classroom with him. I'll go see that principal. And well, all we're going to bring those other two back. Exactly. But what we want to start is that support group. We want to restart a support group so that Quentin and Erica can come together. I don't know. We haven't figured it out once a month. Right now I'm calling it the choir because we all need to be kind of singing the same tune. I don't want MAGA people in that group so that we have a chance to talk to each other about how do we be there for kids and how do we be there for each other? That's what Foxfire did. And I don't think that we have too many of those groups anymore. We've got all this data about people who are leaving or not going into the profession or can't get into the profession because of the rules and regulations that makes it impossible. I have so many students that can't pass those stupid tests, you know, and talk about racist, you know, generally the people who can't pass the test don't look like me. They look like Quentin. And so, you know, we've got, we have to come to our con our unions to ask for more support. We have to get people to believe that union work makes a difference and that we can make a lot of noise to do that. LA Unified is actually in pretty good shape for all the problems that it has. It's got a strong union. UTLA is a strong union. And the teachers, I've always encouraged my students to join, but yeah, I don't want to join the union. But that's that collective message that we need. We need to be collectively connected. So Quentin, I know your story out here in LA, so we can put some pressure you know, to do that. That's why, um, Julian, Jesse, is so good at this because Julian, our, our dean at the University of Connecticut, you know, Kentucky, Kentucky. He's, 
he's so good at making those connections and we have to do more of that so, i don't know if that gets you on the right place jesse no I, that gets that gets us i think you you took us to the point where i want to move us now i sometimes uh people look at my show and say you're all about the world is falling apart and i'm always saying no. we're about hope we're about rise hope rising we're about change and change Absolutely. is good so i think you you set us up for this you set us up that we need uh teacher networks pedagogical networks right. messages of power support people in the classroom so so what i what i think i'd, I'd like to do now uh, i'd like to go to erica and then quinton and i'd like to know what would make you come back? Erica? That's a hard question. Um, yeah. Or what would make people stay? Because that was Julian yeah, Vasquez. I mean, so I think, I think, um, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of things I could say about this. I think that, um, you know, I see, I see, folks that are wanting to create their own schools, to be honest, and, and wanting to just be kind of remove themselves from the, the oppressive structure and start their own schools. Um, and I, and I, if there was a school that I felt where I could be completely myself and, and have the freedom to, to do what was best for the kids, I, I may go back. Um, however, I think, um, there's something powerful that is happening with the upcoming aspiring educators. So when we talk about hope, so I, I can't, it's hard for me to answer what would make me go back. It has, there's a lot of factors. My students, number one, it, it would be the, my only reason for going back um, <laughs> in the current state. What I can say though, is if you look at the aspiring educators and um, you know, I know we're talking about unions and I have my very personal thoughts about unions, particularly my local, which is not mine. and hasn't been for a while. Um, but what I will say is that the aspiring educators that are rising up in, in education programs are demanding, demanding that they be given training and education on how to disrupt the school to prison pipeline as an educator. If you look at the representative assembly that happened this past summer at NEA, the aspiring educators came up with these incredible new business items that really were demanding that NEA because they knew that it wasn't happening in their undergraduate or their um, their their uh, education prep prep programs in at their universities and colleges, they were demanding that NEA provide trainings for them to be the best culturally responsive anti-racist teachers possible. And these are educators of color. These are white aspiring educators. They they know what's up because they are the most recent folks that have come out of the school system. So they know what they experience personally and they want to know how to be that they want to be the best teachers possible and the best educators possible and whatever that looks like, whatever their role would be in the school system. So they are the hope that I have seen. And I I, I was so inspired. In fact, I had I even had written testimony to speak in support. We unfortunately and never the, their new business items never made it to the floor because of lack of time but their demands are there. So if you wanna see the, the, the hope for the future, it is the young people that are coming up that want to teach and they want, and they are demanding freedom to teach the way that they wanna teach. They are demanding that school districts and school systems are held accountable for what they are doing. Um, and they are brave and courageous and strong and are brilliant. And so that 
you know, if, if I had a school district run by the young people coming up in the schools now, I would go back in a heartbeat. Um, I just, I really encourage you to kind of look at the, and it's specifically NEA aspiring educators um, who are really, and they are not putting up with it. And they are also demanding that their unions be responsive to their needs as black and brown teachers and educators and that the union listen to them and that the union support them in their locals and in their states. They're demanding all of these things and they have, they are, there's no fear. Um, and so I really, they, they are inspiring to me every single, every single day and I build relationships with them because they are the way. Yeah. So I know right, that good. kind of didn't necessarily no, no, answer your question. No, in full, no but. problem. We're going to go Quentin. <laughs> we want some hope. And I want to remind people now we're down to our last 14 minutes. So you got to get it done in like 90 seconds. Quentin, what would make you come back? Do we got you, Quentin, there? You're on mute. You're on mute. He's, he's on mute. I'm Hold sorry. On. I wrote, okay. I said I wrote some quick bullet points because I wanted to get these in. So first, education needs to be honest with itself. It needs to stop saying things like norms and things are culturally responsive when norms are a way to make others add normal. In other words, if norms don't look like my community, then really what you've done is created something that is oppressive to me. Number two. Um, we need to have the NEAs in these groups actually commit to what their response uh, responsibility is. Yes, you might lose with legal precedent, but honestly, you might win. And we need people to fight and remember that these teachers are human. I am a human. I make mistakes. I sometimes say things I don't mean to say. So we have to start remembering that humans need protection. And then finally, the most important thing, and this is what I'm excited about. I want to teach teachers as well. I'm inspired to someday be like Denisha. I want to be a, a pre-service teacher like you so I can teach them some of the ways that I have succeeded and failed. But I'm excited to go back to the classroom because now I fully understand that y'all can't do anything more to me anyway. <laughs> you've labeled me, you've tried to fire me, you've tried to silence me. My students need me. Now that means I am going to face a lot. And I guess what I finally figured out in taking this sabbatical for these three or four weeks is that if I'm going to be a martyr anyway, if I'm going to be somebody that takes this trauma on, then at least take it so that I can be part of tomorrow and inspire the next voices. So I'm following Chris Emden and his work. I'm being fully ratchetemic and I'm going back in the classroom, being my beautiful black self, being loud, wearing dashikis. I'm going <laughs> rocking with pride. And anybody that's got a problem with that, hey, put me on paid leave again. It was fun. I got to sit around and play video games. <laughs> well, well, it was we, we needed you in that classroom, but we've got this idea that it's the students that will bring people back. And then I think Brianne wanted to say something real quick, uh, something yeah. about moral injury. Yes. So this, so this is a really interesting term, you know, Clint talked a little bit about the burnout that we researched um, for our second wave of our study. And really burnout is a blameful term for teachers. Um, it's, it's really kind of blaming them um, for not being resilient enough. Um, we've heard this a lot from our focus groups and from our interviews and a term that was new to me 
um, that was provided by one of our interview participants um, was the phrase moral injury. Um, teachers are morally injured. We've really utilized that term predominantly um, to discuss soldiers, um, to discuss medical professionals, but really moral injury is really what these teachers have described today and what all of the teachers that we spoke with um, described, which is doing things that you know are going to cause harm for students, for the profession, um, and, and being fo feeling forced to do that because, you know, there are aspects of our job that we have to carry out one way or the other, whether we like it or not in some cases. Um, you know, we can push back, but there are just some things that, like giving standardized tests, there are just some things that is expected of teachers that we we have to do. And so this moral injury is really kind of what we've keyed in on on this study, especially with the qualitative piece. It's not burnout because it's not, teachers are resilient. They are, it's not that they're lacking resilience. It's not that they're not doing enough self-care, right? It's that they are being morally injured by the system, by the institutions that they are put in. And by the same volition, students are also being morally injured. That's not a piece of our particular study, but we know that that's happening as well. So I really wanted to clarify that because a lot of teachers that we've spoken with have really talked about, you know, burnout is blameful to them. It's putting the pressure on them. It's putting the blame on them. Um, it's saying something is, is wrong with them, that they're in a deficit of some sort. And we know that that's not true. Teachers have put their full selves into teaching students throughout their career, especially in these last two years, three years of COVID, the way that they've been able to change daily um, and, and really work within a system that wasn't set up to, to work the way that it did during COVID, you know, teachers have shown resilience. So it's not burnout. Um, they've really been morally injured. So this idea of morally injured, that's a good place to take us. I will remind America that we have two school systems. Mm -hmm. So in Connecticut, we are the wealthiest state in the nation, but we have the widest income gap. And my urban teachers are paid the least, given the least resources. They have the least amount of specialized support. And my wealthy affluent schools, which are often very white, are the ones that have every bell and whistle. So that is a moral injury. Uh, they don't get combat pay like soldiers do. Soldiers get combat pay. They don't. So let me go to Denisha and give us some solution, sister. Yes. Um, it is a moral injury that's happening in everything that everyone talks about, there's, there's so much going on, right? But like one of the big things I think was this idea that came up a lot of teachers talked about. We cannot self-care our way out of systematic oppression. Like stop telling teachers to self-care and then say, by the way, here's 50,000 things for you to do and you don't have the time and you don't have the money. What we need is collective care for the trauma we are experiencing, right? So I had a parent, I think she was a parent, she's an activist, actually, I was doing a film discussion, and she was an activist, and she mentioned something about how the response across the country after September the 11th attack, right? There were therapists in every school across the country, not just in New York, and in DC and Maryland, where the most action happened, right? Across the country, it was national trauma, every school put counselors there to help students grieve. We are now millions of people dead, and yet we don't seem to care. Everybody just said, we're open, go back to school. And then there's this, oh, students forgot how to student. That came up a lot in our data. Yeah, they did, because there was a national trauma. COVID was trauma for everyone. Whether you lost someone or not, 
it was trauma. It was trauma to be told you can't leave your house because there's a deadly virus out there that's taking people's lives, right? It was very traumatic and we don't address it. We need collective care. Self-care is also going to be seen as a slap in the face, right? Because you can't self-care your way out of this nonsense. It wasn't created. So what is schools engaged in collective care for their entire staff and for their and for their teachers and students and everybody and said, what can we do to support everyone collectively instead of telling you, go take 10 minutes and do some yoga, um, but it doesn't solve any of the problems. A lot of teachers said they were, they were going away on the weekends, they were doing all this stuff to clear their head, but that Sunday dread is real and it makes you off in this awful state of like, I can't go back to work like this, right? So no amount of walking the beach and meditation, none of that, got them ready to go back to school and deal with what they have to deal with, right? Um, and then we need to stop all of this nonsense about catching up and learning loss and that education is some big race and that people are missing like that stuff. Like like if we hold ourselves to the same metric before COVID when we didn't have in-person schooling for so long, it's like we're setting ourselves up to fail intentionally and then stepping back and say, oh, things are a mess, right? And that's not helping anyone, right? How, how do we not stop and shift the guidepost and really think about what matters in school and let's work towards that instead of some imaginary goal that we can't get back to. We can't get back to where we were before the pandemic hit, right? And then lastly, we have to really address these attacks on, on, on teaching truth, on teaching real history, because we can't expect teachers to go out into this world and have to deal with this reality where their books are being questioned, their lessons are being questioned, no one's supporting them, um, because we are centering white emotionality over the lived experiences of people of color, right? That can't be okay. And, if we, and, and what Quentin said is true. I am an attorney. That is a strategy. Attorneys have a strategy called, are we going to bring this case and set a horrible precedent or not? And that's a, and I get that strategy, but that doesn't help the people in the middle of this dealing with this every day. We've had teachers kicked out of schools for wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts. We've had teachers kicked out of school um, for lots of different things. Where is the support from the Biden administration, from the Department of Education, um, from the unions, right? We need to show that we're not, they were doing a study and they were talking to people about what's happening and there were Democrats saying, we wanna hear our elected officials saying, no, there's nothing wrong with critical race theory. Like this has gone out of control. They're not saying anything. Everyone's being quiet and hoping it's gonna go away. This is not gonna go away. This is how whiteness operates, right? And if we don't protect it in the schools, right? And look what they're doing around don't say gay, right? They're, they're, they're lining these two things, right? So it's not even just, it's racism, it's, it's sexual orientation, it's all of these things. And we're leaving teachers out with no cover. And what happens, you're just not gonna talk about the uncomfortable things because you don't feel like you're protected. You don't feel like anyone support you. So we have to address all of these things and we have to support teachers and listen to teachers. All of the teachers we spoke to, have really good ideas about what could be done. No one will listen to, and not just listen and like, but not listen and then do what they're telling you to do, right? Like hear them out and, and try. Maybe it doesn't work, but you give it a try. Okay, that's a really good idea. Let's try that out for six, three months and see what happens, right? And look at the data and then come back at it. But at least they're showing that you're trying to do something. So many teachers had wonderful ideas about how to do online learning in ways that were going to be engaging and they were shut down. 
they were shut down and, and they were, some of them left and are in legal battles with their school districts over this, right? Because their attempts to make that time during the pandemic better for their students. So that's a lot that we can do, but you know, it's possible. And there are some people doing it. We've had some teachers told us about administrators who retained hundred percent of staff. They were very supportive along the way. They were doing everything they needed to do. And she was jazzed about going back to work. One out of 50 some odd interviews, right? But that shows you that that's one hope, right? That's one school where everyone's behind their principal who's doing the amazing work. So we need more of those stories as well too. So 30 seconds, people, I'm gonna have to end it here. Uh, Harry's gonna start the music in a minute, but I see a lot of hope. I see Quentin coming to be a teacher, Eric, uh, educator. I see Erica rising and we're building the community. I see Denisha is on fire over there. Um, I'm, I'm hearing uh, Cynthia McDermott saying, hey, Firefox is not dead. It's just coming back into place. And I love this idea of networks of hope and, 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 and research that will support it. And, and we've got to be realized, teachers need our support. And, and our students are our learners, and so are As we. I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to thank listen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition. Filling positions, looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you're stressing, but you're going to be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, because they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never going to give up, give up. Fall down, I just got to get up, get up, yeah. Cause this is my road, let's camera action, I'm ready to go. I'm never gonna give up, give up, fall down, I just gotta get up.